When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma trip to Texas. So go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, one of my favorite things to do in life is to find and hike a trail out in the wild somewhere. My favorite place to hike by far, Vermont. I love how a good trail gently leads you through nature. You don't have to think much about where you're going, so it gives you time to think about other things. And this is great for chewing on deep issues and getting new insights, but it also causes you to take the trail for granted. For example, I sometimes forget that a group of people blaze the trail I'm enjoying and that another group of people continues to maintain it without any fanfare. My guest today decided to stop taking trails for granted and explore them in depth, both literally and metaphorically, after his own hike on the Appalachian Trail. His name is Robert Moore, and he's the author of the book On Trails and Exploration. Today on the show, Robert shares why he decided to hike the entire Appalachian Trail after he graduated from college and why that experience led him to diving deeper into the meaning of trails. We then discuss why following a trail is so existentially satisfying and how trails are embedded in human thought and communication and provide us with a sense of place and orientation in our lives. And we end our conversation talking about the idealistic origins of the Appalachian Trail, the movement to extend the Appalachian Trail to Morocco, yes, Morocco, and what a perpetual hiker named Nimblewill Nomad can teach us about the limits of freedom. If you're a hiker, you're going to love this show. If you're not a hiker, it's going to inspire you to find a trail this weekend and become one. After the show is over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash trails. Robert Moore, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So you wrote a book on trails and exploration, and it's all about trails. And some people might hear that and think, well, that's kind of boring. But you found out that there's a lot to trails and trail making, and it was a fascinating read. Let's talk about the impetus behind this book. It was your exploration of trails was started by your own hike of the Appalachian Trail. When did you hike the Appalachian Trail and why did you decide you wanted to do the through hike where you'd go all the way from Georgia to Maine? Yeah, so I hiked the Appalachian Trail in 2009 when I was graduated from undergrad and I, I had some time before I knew I was going to graduate school. So I had a nice little break there in my life. And if you talk to through hikers, which is what people who hike the whole Appalachian Trail are called, they'll often tell you that, that they were at a, a, a sort of a, uh, a gap in their life. They were trying to find the next step forward. Maybe they just got divorced or they just got fired or a lot of people just come out of the military. A lot of people have just retired. And that's where I was in my life. I didn't know exactly where I was going next. I knew I was going to graduate school. And so I had a good deadline. I had to be back by September but I had nothing to do for those five months. And it was something I dreamed of doing since I was a kid. I'd, I'd grown up going to summer camp in Maine and seeing these through hikers and, and wanting to emulate them. And so I, I saw my chance and uh, I took it. Yeah. 
So you were a hiker before you did the, the Appalachian Trail? I was, yeah. I was. I'd done quite a bit of hiking, backpacking up to that point, but never longer than maybe a couple of weeks. You know, I'd, I'd certainly never gone longer than a month. And so the idea of hiking for five months was a bit daunting, but once you start doing it, you realize it's just the same as any other hike. You just have to keep going. You know, that's the trick <laughs> is to keep going. Right. What was it about your experience on the Appalachian Trail that led you to want to explore trails from a macro view? Yeah, it, it, it's funny you say that, uh, you know, the thing about it being boring, because that's something that when I was writing this book, I ran into a lot. People would say, what do you, you know, what's your book about? And I would say, I'm writing a book about trails. And it just, it'd be kind of a blank stare, you know, because <laughs> no one has, has written a book about trails before. And the idea that they're not something we think about very much, as I write in the book, you know, we kind of tend to overlook them, right? If a trail is doing what it's supposed to do, you don't look at it at all. It just leads you to where you need to go invisibly and you're looking up and you're looking out at the, at the landscape. But the year that I hiked the Appalachian Trail was a very rainy year. Uh, and the, the, the New York Times called it the summer that wasn't. Because it just stayed cold and rainy the whole summer. And so I had a lot of time just to stare at my boots and, and stare at the trail and think about it. And, you know, it was by myself. And as you do, you, you start to expand upon your own ideas. And I, and I was noticing that the trail, first of all, was not a static thing. It wasn't what I thought it was. It, you, you think of it almost as a paved path, but it isn't because as anyone who hikes a, a hiking trail knows, when people don't like the way the trail goes, they take a shortcut, right? If, if there's a big, long <clears throat> switchback going down a mountain, then people will just make a shortcut, go where they want to go, and that becomes the new trail. And so there's a, a kind of liquid quality to trails that I found really fascinating. And then as I was hiking along farther, I started to realize that it, we weren't alone on this trail. In fact, animals were following the trail as well. If you paid close attention, you'd start to notice little hoof prints and little footprints on the trail, deer, and bear, and other animals and so th that notion started to crack. There's cracks started to form in what my understanding of what a trail was, and it started to widen. And then I started noticing ant trails. And then I started thinking about metaphorical trails, why that phrase, the trail or the path, is so prevalent across languages, across religions, across cultures. What, what is this very fundamental thing that we're all following? Yeah. No, let's follow that idea of paths and trails being a metaphor that we use in language, because one of the arguments in you, you make in the book is that trail making is one of the animal world's first forms of communication. Yeah, I think that's, that's true. I mean, it's really definitely one of the simplest forms of communication. And it's a little bit complicated, you know, because I, I went to find the oldest trails on earth, which are in Newfoundland, and these, these fossilized trails, of something called Ediacara biota, which are 565 million years ago. And yet, when I started to think about what those were, they're not really trails because they, they're, they're traces. You know, they were left behind in, in the movement of these animals, these very, very early animals. But unless someone else is picking them up and following them, then it's not really a trail. That was where my definition of a trail came in. Is, is that it's in that act of following something someone else has left behind, and then you leaving a trace 
in your passage that someone else can follow. And, and when you do that, you set up a sort of evolutionary uh, sequence that becomes it begins to streamline over time. But if you look at it very simply, that's what a trail is. An animal has gone somewhere and left this very simple message on the ground saying, hey, there's something worth going to here. You know, if you stumble upon a game trail in the forest, that's a pretty good indication that there's something there because enough animals have gone there and, and decided that this trail is worth following for it to remain, for it to perpetuate. Right. So uh, trails are, they, they externalize. It's a way to externalize information in the outside it world. It is. Yeah. It's a, it's a way to externalize uh, information. It's almost an external form of, of memory. You can almost look at it as an external memory. When, when you look at insects, for example, that's kind of how they're using trails. If you look at fire ants, for example, they'll, they'll go out from their nests, they'll find food, they'll come back and they leave a message. And that, that message is in pheromones that they're, of course, invisible, but they can detect them very clearly. And so if they find a big store of food, they're going to go and leave a very strong trail, right? They're, they're going to, they get excited. They leave a lot of pheromones. That then sends a signal to the other ants that there's a lot of food there. They go find the food. They leave a very strong trail. That, that signal keeps amplifying until the food is gone. And then they don't leave a strong trail. This, the trail begins to diminish, to evaporate. The signal lessens. And somewhere else, there's a, a stronger signal. So the ants very quickly stop following that trail and start following a new trail, which allows them to create these ever-updating networks uh, of, of information that are, that are incredibly intelligent and incredibly efficient. Yeah, I thought it was interesting when you were describing the, the ant trail researchers, which is surprising. You know, <laughs> There's people who dedicate their lives to researching how ants make trails. But it's really fascinating how you said that in the beginning, the trails would be very sporadic. But over time, they got more and more refined and more and more straight. It was sort of this up, you know, bottom-up approach to uh, trail making. Yeah, it's a, it's a streamlining process, you know. And I think this is familiar to anyone who who does any sort of creative process. You know that your first draft is not very good, and and that's true of ants as well. When they go off and they find a piece of food. Finding a way back to the nest is, is difficult. You know, the, the landscape is a chaotic place. This is a, a theme that runs throughout the book, is that trails are a way of managing the chaos of landscape. And so they're trying to find their way home, and they're making all sorts of errors, and they're leaving this really wiggly, really strange trail on their way back. One of the anecdotes that I recount is, is this guy, Richard Feynman, the famous physicist, he did a little experiment on his, on his bathtub where he set a lump of sugar and he watched the first ant go off and find the lump of sugar and make its way back to the nest. And it was making all sorts of mistakes. But the second ant came, found the same sugar, and it was following the first ant's trail. But as it was going along, it was making little adjustments. You know, It was shaving off the inside of the curves and it was cutting off unnecessary bends. And the trail got a little bit straighter. And then the third ant comes and the fourth ant and over time, the trail gets straighter and straighter and straighter because, of course, they're trying to optimize to get home while using as little energy as possible, you know, minimizing their caloric expenditure. And that's where this elegance comes from. It's a really simple system, but it's really effective. And how do more complex animals make trails? So the ants leave pheromones behind, say something like buffalo or 
hogs or something like that? How do they go about making trails? Is it is it the same sort of bottom up, or are they off? Are they a little more deliberate about it? Certainly, yeah. There, well, it's hard to you know that's that's something I, I asked a lot of animal researchers is if animals know what a trail means. You know, if, if there's some sort of semiotic content to a trail for an animal, meaning. It, when we walk through the woods and we see a trail, you look at it and you say, that's a trail that goes somewhere. And, I, and it's unclear whether most, ma- most mammals look at a trail and say, that's a trail, or whether they just think something along the lines of, there's less vegetation there, so it's easier to walk. But when it comes to the larger and smarter mammals, especially elephants, it's pretty clear that it is a, a, a deliberative process, both the making of the trails and the following of them. When they, elephants have incredibly powerful memories and incredible sense organs. So when they go somewhere, they, they tend to know where they're going and they pass down their trails from generation to generation. So once they're disrupted, I've spoken with researchers of, uh, who study forest, uh, forest elephants and they told me that the, the, if you start breaking up the forest elephants' trails through logging, for example, you completely disrupt their communal memory. You, you really screw up their ability to find forage, to find water, to find mates. It, it's that they rely upon those trails. And so, you know, he compared it to imagine if you went into a major city like Dresden that's been totally bombed, you know, and you grew up there and you knew your, you knew how to find your way to school, but suddenly all the blocks have been blown apart and everything's in chaos. You couldn't find your way to school anymore. It'd be much more difficult. So I think that among larger mammals, it's, it, it is a uh, deliberative process, but there's still, a, there's still something very simple about it, which they, they keep in common with the smaller insects and smaller mammals. So let's talk about humans. When did humans start making trails? Or do we have evidence of when humans started making trails? And what did they base their, those initial trails on? Yeah, we don't we don't have any good archaeological evidence for when the earliest human trails are. And part of that I found out while I was researching this book is because archaeologists until very recently did not study trails. They studied roads and they studied other things that were made with your hands. You know, there's a kind of bias for things that are made with your hands rather than things that are made with your feet. Um, the, many of them would not consider trails to be an archaeological artifact. Whereas if you made paving stones, then that was an artifact. But the, 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 the basic way that trails are made, I mean, you know, it's the same as animals, but what becomes interesting with humans is that very early we begin weaving our trails together with our understanding of the world. And so, for example, with folklore, you'll find that folk tales, ancient folk tales, you know, indigenous folk tales from, from many places are woven together with the trails. The stories will actually follow ancient pathways and describe things that took place along the way. And so the story is pegged to certain places in the landscape. It's, it's not just an abstract idea like a girl walked through a forest and you know, there was a big wolf following her. It's a girl walked through this forest and stopped at this watering hole and picked this plant. And all of those things tend to follow a, a trail because, of course, that's where, you would, that's, that's where the people would be walking and telling these stories. And that's what the, the, the way that their landscape would be stitched together, as it were. And so I spent a lot of time talking to people 
uh, a lot of Native American uh, communities about their trail traditions. And in fact, I found a man in North Carolina who's trying to map all of the ancient Cherokee trails that existed there. And one of the things he found is that it's woven together with their culture in a really kind of an inextricable way. Yeah, that thought was interesting. Because I live in Oklahoma, so you know the Western Cherokees are here, right? This five civilized tribe. That's right. And I'm yeah. right, right here, pretty much in um, Tulsa. Like that's like we're like in the heart of it. But I thought the interesting point you made was that the the Cherokee who still live in North Carolina, when they tell these stories, they talk about specific mountains, right? The Western Cherokees in Oklahoma, they have those stories too, but they just talk about kind of a general mountain or a general river. Yeah, that's right. The the, the stories have been have been cut off from. The place and and one of the things that that someone told me who who studies these, she said that you know you can hear this story. There's one story in particular that she was talking about, which was about a, a race between some turtles. And she said you can hear that story in Oklahoma, and it's still a powerful story. It still conveys a lot of information and wisdom. But when you tell that story in North Carolina, and in fact you stand on the mountain that the story is describing, you can look out across the landscape and the tops of the mountains, the green tops of the mountains look like turtle shells. And actually you can see the story taking place in the landscape. And she said, it just has so much more power there. Yeah. And so, I mean, yeah, it's trails then in a way situate us, not only physically, right, but also existentially, like it gives us a sense of meaning in our, in our life. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think they they give us a sense of of meaning and coherence. You know, you're the world is a confusing place and if we didn't have any trails, either physical or metaphorical, we would be just totally lost. Right. I thought it was interesting how you talk about how we with the information age, we're moving less from like a a trail-based culture. Cause like, if you look back, if you go back, what I thought was interesting, you go back to the hum- all of like in America, a lot of the trails and roads we have today, they basically follow uh, Buffalo herding migrations that native Americans followed to hunt. And then when white people came here from Europe, the white people f- began to follow those trails that the native Americans had blazed by, by following these herds. So it was all this very up bottom up organic approach. And even the roads we have today often follow these trails that began maybe millions of years ago. But today, we we take a much more top-down approach to our road making or trail making. How how do you think that has detached us from our sense of place by going from a top-down approach? Mm, yeah, that's that's a big question. I mean that 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 organic approach that you describe is you know has a lot to speak for it because it, it, it creates trails that are very um, that are very elegant and very situated in the landscape. And then when you build a culture around that, it creates a culture that's also situated in the landscape. And so we've, as, as everyone knows, we, you know, we've been pulling away from that since, at least since the era of industrialism. And if not, since some people would say since the era of the invention of, of agriculture, we've been changing our approach to land. And, and so one of the reasons why we make this shift in our trails, why we, for example, build highways is because a trail evolves to suit the needs of the people who follow it. So if you're, you know, if you don't need uh, on a foot trail, you don't need a whole lot, a whole lot of infrastructure. You don't need a whole lot of planning. They can evolve organically. And by evolving organically, they, they become very elegant and very beautiful 
and they they uh, disappear, right? When you stop using them, they just fade back into the landscape. But you can't drive a semi truck along a trail. You need infrastructure. You need planning. And so you end up creating these new forms of of trail making uh, that have a totally different character. And and one of the effects of that, one of the the, the reasons why we do it is to go faster, right? That's it to f- go faster to carry more freight. And in doing that, we are uh, moving more and more quickly through the landscape. We're not engaging with it in the same way. Anyone who's ever taken a, a road trip and then gone for a hike, you, you, know, you get out of your car and you go for a hike and you can feel your brain transform. You can feel the, the mode that you're in shift because this landscape's not sliding past you at high speed anymore. You're actually in it and, and it's all around you and you're having to navigate it in a much different, much more intense way. And of course, you can imagine how much more profound that would be if you had been walking across that same landscape for weeks or years or generations. Um, so I think we, we, everybody knows we're more cut off from the natural world than we used to be. That's, that's a very common um, trope, I think, in, in nature writing. And, but I think that the, one of the ways that that's happening that we don't think about very often is the way that we move through the world, whether we're walking on trails or we're walking, you know, driving on highways or riding on a Shinkansen bullet train through Japan. Yeah. That when you were talking about the highways, it made me think, have you seen cars, right? The Disney Pixar movie? I have not. No. Oh, there's this like scene that's like, it gets you in the feels every time you watch it. So like, there's like this <laughs> little town called Radiator Springs in the middle of the desert and route 66, like ran through it. And like route 66, if you've been on route 66, it's very curvy and it goes through the landscape right. and it's, it's, it's a nice drive, but then I 40 is built and it bypasses Radiator Springs and the, no one comes to visit Radiator Springs anymore. And it's all sad. Yeah. It reminds yeah, me of that. that. That's true. Yeah, I was just out on Route 66, actually, in New Mexico, and you do see that, that whole towns will dry up or they'll migrate to follow those, yeah, those gigantic trails. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, like, walking on a trail. I love trail hiking because it's just so soothing, right? Like, like I, when I get on the trail, it doesn't matter what trail it is, I just feel great. Uh, what's going on there? Is it because I'm in nature or is there something more going on because I'm on a trail? Yeah, there's a lot going on there. The, the, the first thing is that walking on a trail is, I think it, it is kind of existentially soothing. And the best way to understand that is to go off the trail every once in a while, right? To go on a hike for two or three days where you don't walk on a trail. And that's, Depending on the landscape, it can be easier. It can be very difficult. Out west, it's a lot easier. In the desert, you can do it. I've, you know, I've been on hikes in New Mexico and Wyoming and, and Montana that, that are okay uh, off trail. But if you try to do it in the east where there's a lot more vegetation, it, it gets tough really quick. And actually, that's true here where I live as well. I live in the Pacific Northwest. And if you have a, a really heavily forested area, uh, man, you as soon as you go off trail, you're you're wishing for that trail again. I, I went for a hike in in Newfoundland that I describe in the book, uh, where I was fighting my way through these these stunted trees for hours and hours on end. And when I finally found my way back to the trail after this three day hike that just took everything I had, uh, I was you know I wanted to weep for joy because y- you start following the trail and all that weight 
of not just having to fight your way through the vegetation, but worrying, am I lost? Am I, am I going to die out here? You know, there's this real dread and this fear that follows you when you go off trail because you don't have that assurance all of a sudden. And so the trail allows you, it just lifts that weight from you and it allows you to go into a more, I think just a, a more peaceful meditative mode of walking than this very heightened fight or flight awareness that you have when you're off trail. Yeah. And I, I love, the other thing I love about trail make or the tr- falling in trails, like the decision's already been made for me, right? Like I don't have to make the decision of where I'm going. Yeah, I just follow the trail. And I, I think in a, our culture that really puts a premium on choice, like, man, choice is exhausting. And like, sometimes I just want to be told what to do and where to go. Yeah, this is a dichotomy that would really serve everyone well to think a lot about because you're right. We grow up in, as kids in America, you grow up with this, this, this belief that the pathfinder and the trailblazer is heroic and everyone else are just kind of sheep, you know, they're just lemmings and, and there's a real shame attached to that. And so whatever field you're in, for example, in the field of writing, I always put this enormous premium on myself as a college student, you know, as a high school student to try and do everything completely originally. I I would not read the old classics because I thought that's already been done. You know, I need to be a trailblazer. And that's actually too much pressure to put on yourself unless you're someone who is a a complete genius, you know, just a a sweet, generous talent um, who comes along once in a generation it's it's overwhelming. It's like fighting your way through this tangled wilderness. And in fact, once you find a trail, what you find is by following it, you know, by following the tradition, by following the wisdom of people who've, who've come before you, you're not just following, you're also creating, right? Because every person who follows a trail changes that trail a little bit. And so that can be a very, very productive way of doing things. But then also, you have to keep in mind that some trails become ruts, right? Sometimes the trail degrades because too many people have followed it and it's not useful anymore. And so you, you do have to break off into the, into the weeds of life every once in a while and try and blaze something new. Right. Yeah. I love that idea of not disparaging if you're just following a trail. Like I remember uh, we go to Vermont. My family goes to Vermont every summer. The Appalachian Trail goes through that. Actually, we'll talk about that, how the long trail in Vermont was sort of the impetus of the Appalachian Trail. Mm -hmm. Um, But I remember thinking when I was on a trail um, hiking, thinking, boy, I'm really grateful for the people who come and maintain this trail. Like if it weren't for these folks, like I wouldn't be able to enjoy this thing. And I'm glad they're there. And they're sort of the unsung heroes of, of trails. Yeah. I'm really glad that you had that realization because most people don't, most people don't even think about trail makers at all. And that's something that on the Appalachian trail, there's a little festival in the middle of it called trail days for hikers. They all get together in this town in Virginia and they, you know, have a big bonfire and, and party and get to meet one another, right? Because you're all strung out along the trail and you're this community, but you never really meet each other. And one of the things they do is just after that, you get together and all the hikers will go volunteer with this incredible old guy named Bob Peoples. And they'll go do a weekend of trail building. And it's your way of kind of paying back the good karma that's been paid to you by all these trail makers. And one of the things that you realize is that most through hikers don't think, haven't even thought about the fact that someone made this. And if they have, the only thing they've been focusing on is, wow, the guy who made this did a really crappy job. You know, this, the person who did this didn't build a good bridge for me or didn't, uh, you know, just took me out of my way. You start to get this very 
begrudging, weird mindset when you're a through hiker because you're trying to cover so many miles each day that you don't want to screw around. You don't want to have to go in the wrong direction. So oftentimes you'll find the trail journals, which are these journals that people leave in uh, the, the shelters along the way. And they're sort of communal journals people will write in. They'll just complain about the quality of the trail. But when you get out there and you start building it yourself and you realize that every inch of this trail that stretches from Georgia to Maine has been built with someone's hands, not with power tools, most of the time with, with hand tools by volunteers, you really realize what a, what a beautiful, incredible thing that is that, that people have put all that time and energy into building this thing for, for nothing, for no profit, uh, just for, you know, just for the sake of it. These trail makers, like what did you discover, like what makes for a good trail? And for someone who has walked the Appalachian Trail and lots of trails, what do you think makes for a good trail? It's a very complicated process of building a, a good trail because you have to, it, it's a kind of, uh, it's almost like predicting the future. You need to guess where people are going to want to walk, right? Because trails are an expression of desire. So if you build a bad trail, people are going to go off trail. They're going to go wherever they want. And one of the really funny things is to see how trail makers fight with hikers, right? One of the guys I talked to, works at the ATC told me, you know, this whole hiker management thing would be a whole lot easier without the hikers. And what he means by hiker management is that hikers don't always follow the trail, as we've said. So sometimes to stop them, they'll do things like install jagged rocks on the side of the trail. They call those gargoyles, or they'll dump a big load of of branches. Or sometimes uh, one guy I I read said he would dump a, a bunch of poison oak leaves on a side trail that people were trying to take to get them to stop going. You know, you want the people to go where you want them to go. And the reason why is that a hiking trail doesn't just have to be uh, efficient. It doesn't, does, doesn't just have to get you from point A to point B. And in this way, it's, a hiking trail is totally different from any trail that exists on Earth. Because a hiking trail's its impetus is to be sustainable. It's to shed water efficiently. It's to not destroy a whole lot of sensitive vegetation. So they take on these really screwy shapes. And when we're walking a trail, you can feel that. That's why we make those shortcuts is because there's a very deep animal part of you that says, this isn't right. This isn't the most elegant way to get up or down this mountain. I want to go where I want to go. And so the, the, the task of a trail builder, and this is something Elsa, I think is a really powerful metaphor for anyone who works in, in you know, a field where you have to deal with people, but especially people who work in the world of sustainability. The job of a trail builder is to get the hiker to go where the hiker should go based on everyone's communal best interest, rather than where the hiker naturally wants to go based on their own self-interest. And that's a really tricky task. The best, the, best hike, the best trail builders that I've met, the real master trail builders, do it in such a way that they make the hiker want to stay on the trail because the trail is so beautiful that they don't want to get off the trail. You know, they're enjoying it so much. So, for example, if there's a waterfall that you can hear, you have to make the trail go to that waterfall because if you don't, people are just going to go there anyway. The best trail builders know that and they... They use your desire as a hiker rather than trying to thwart your desire. Right. So again, the, the idea of trail, trail making as communication is being displayed right here. Yeah. It's, it's a kind of communication. It's a kind of, it's almost a kind of narrative. I mean, 
it's 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 a little bit profound if you think about it as a trail builder what you're doing is you're building an experience for another person yeah and i I thought was also interesting about the book is that this idea of like hiking right it's a new idea like people if you think about it yeah people in the 1600s probably didn't like would even imagine like i'm gonna hike from georgia to maine like that wasn't like or i'm just gonna go out into the wilderness to be out in the wilderness that wasn't their thing when did like being out in the wilderness and going hiking as a as a as a pleasurable activity something you would do just to pass the time when did that become a thing yeah this this is this is something that anyone who's gone hiking in another country probably realize because not only is hiking a very modern thing it's a very western thing it's a very european and and north american thing you know when i i went on a hike in tanzania once and the maasai tribesmen that i met told me that they refer to hikers or as westerners you know who most of them they see are hiking as people with heavy luggage looking for problems you know because they, (laughs) they would see these people walking along with these giant bags on their back and there would be a big mountain and there'd be a trail going around to the left and a trail going around it to the right and they would walk straight up the mountain. And, and that was just kind of hilarious, right? Why, what is wrong with these people that they take the path of most resistance all the time? So, so it is kind of absurd. I mean, before the, the beginning of, of the Romantic era when, when they began to appreciate mountains as these beautiful things, as these sublime things. Before that, they were ugly. People referred to them as pustules, you know, they were, and they were dangerous. And, and the reason for that is largely because they had no value. They had no economic value. You couldn't grow crops there. You know, it was dangerous. If, unless there were minerals to be gotten, why would you go there, you know? And also many people believed, and many cultures believed that it was the abode of spirits, right? That was where uh, the storm god lived. So if you go there, you're, you're tempting fate. And so that changes around the time when you start seeing this shift in culture that we were talking about before. When you, with the rise of industrialism and the rise of urbanism, suddenly people need to get out of cities. They need to get out of their life as it is and get into something that feels to them a little bit wilder, a little bit more natural. And you start seeing this rise in poetry and painting in, in various art forms describing these wild mountains and these forests as beautiful. And with that comes the beginning of hiking. And hiking has gone through a number of, of phases throughout the years. You know, it was not always what it is currently. At one point, hiking meant you'd go off into the woods and you'd cut down a bunch of trees and build yourself a little shelter for the night. You know, that, that was the style of hiking. It was very high impact, but in some ways it was more you might say more natural than sleeping in a, you know, in a nylon tent. And so the, the current mode that we have of hiking is really funny because we think of it as going back to nature when in fact it's this very modern, very unnatural thing to do, which is not to say it's not worth doing. I still love it, but you know, you sort of have to understand what it is. Right. So the wilderness would not be possible without civilization. Like it could not exist. Like you need one. It, it, it does not. Exist. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a, it, it, it's not the concept doesn't make sense without without a fence unless you have a farm and a fence around it then what's outside is not wilderness it's just the world you know there, right. there there's no concept of it well let's talk about the Appalachian Trail because this is the whole thing that kicked off your exploration and what's funny is for some reason I assumed that the Appalachian Trail had been around for hundreds of years that it was some sort of Native American route that 
you know, went from Georgia to Maine and then white people used it for transportation. But that's not the case. Actually didn't (laughs) start until the 20th century. So who was the, who had the idea of create this long continental through trail from Georgia to Maine? Yeah, yeah. There, there, I mean, you're you're right in that there were trade routes up running up and down the Atlantic coast, but they would never have gone the way the Appalachian Trail does, as we said, because it goes over all these mountaintops. It would be much too slow. So the first person to make that realization is a guy named Benton Mackay, and the story he tells is that he was in the in around 1900, maybe 1902. He was sitting on top of a tree on Stratton Mountain in Vermont, and he was looking out over the Appalachian Mountains going south and he he suddenly had this epiphany where he realized that actually the same mountain chain runs all the way to Georgia and he thought you know how incredible would it be to have a a trail connecting a hiking trail connecting all of these mountains and this was during an era of kind of feverish uh, trail building and and he had been on that very hike you know following logging roads following hiking trails kind of stitching together the existing trails that's what he realized that was his real genius was that you wouldn't have to build 2,000 miles of trails. You just had to connect the ones that were already there and give it a name and give it a, a story and give it a mythology. And that would be enough to build this thing. But in the meantime, you know, he didn't, he, that was in his 20s. It took him another 20 years to even get the proposal together. He went off and did other things. And in the meantime, one of the things that springs up, as you mentioned earlier, is the Long Trail, which runs the length of Vermont. And that was the first real through, through trail. You know, it's, it's, it's not nearly the length of the Appalachian Trail, but it starts getting people in the mindset of walking these long distances. Because previously what you would do is you'd go to, uh, these, for example, you'd go to these grand mountain hotels in the late 1800s. You'd stay in the hotel in, in a valley in the, in the Catskills or the Adirondacks, and you'd go on hikes along a trail network. But you wouldn't hike for days and weeks on end in one direction. That was kind of an odd idea. And in fact, it's not really even possible before the invention of the automobile. The automobile and the Appalachian Trail are, are intertwined in a really funny way because the, the automobile allows you to get out to the mountains and allows you to hitchhike back, but it also makes urban spaces so chaotic and so polluted that more people want to get out into the mountains. So the history of backpacking, you, you can't tell without telling the history of cars as well. But finally, Benton Mackay comes back to this idea, the Appalachian Trail that's been growing in his mind all this time. And by the time he comes back to it, he's spent a long time in the world of landscape, architecture. He, he called it geotechnics, you know, planning on a large scale. And he had all these grand dreams that had grown up around the Appalachian Trail. He wanted it to be a kind of socialist communal space where people would escape from the urban centers of the United States that which ran up and down the Atlantic coast predominantly at that time, get out of there, go to the woods, go work on communal farms, go hiking. He even wanted to have sanitariums, massive sanitariums for people suffering from depression and various mental illnesses. And it was going to be this, this beautiful commune in the mountains And so he proposed it to people, and what resonated with people was the idea of the hiking trail. The rest of the stuff didn't really click. And so over time, the trail idea got more and more support, and everything else kind of fell away again, got streamlined away. And what was left with was what he had originally, which is a trail going from Georgia to Maine. 
Yeah. And I thought it was interesting, like he, uh, it kind of, this was all happening in this cultural background that was happening in America at that time, sort of this revolt against modernity, Yeah, right? That industrialization is bad. This is like when yeah. Boy Scouts started getting going, the YMCA, the strenuous life, Teddy Roosevelt's strenuous life. I think even Makai said something about like, like creating new barbarians or something like that. That was like a thing he wanted to do with the Appalachian Trail. That's right. Yeah. He, there was a feeling that he, he called people who lived in cities civilizees, and, and he wanted to have a revolt against the civilizees. He felt people were becoming over-civilized. And, you know, since this is the, the Art of Manliness podcast, it's worth talking about the fact that it was actually quite a, a gendered understanding of uh, the, what the problem was. They felt that boys were becoming weak. You know, they were living in cities, and they were getting too pampered, and their hands were getting soft, and they were getting sick too much and they wanted to toughen them up. And so what you see are these places springing up tons and tons of summer camps devoted to the strenuous life, you know, and devoted to swimming in cold water and hiking big mountains and, you know, all of these things to toughen these kids up and to get them out of this urban environment that was seen as corrupting. And that's actually the summer camp that I went to was a place that was founded in 1902 a little camp called Pine Island and it really hasn't changed much since then. It was, you know, they still use kerosene lanterns. There's no there's no electricity, there's no running water. You're still, you know, bathe in the lake. And so I I had a weird kind of instinctual understanding of this because I it was almost like I went in a time machine every summer. And that's really where the Appalachian Trail springs out of that sense of old timely old timey uh, masculinity tied in with wilderness, that those two things needed one another in a certain way. Right, right. But that that, that connection couldn't exist, with again, without civilization. Right, like, that's the irony. And, and, and yeah, yeah, people wouldn't be going out there, right? They wouldn't have the reason to go out there unless civilization had become what it had become, yeah. Right. Okay, so uh, what I thought was really interesting and kind of preposterous is this idea that people are trying to do with the international Appalachian trail. So this is the idea that the Appalachian trail currently goes from Georgia to Maine. There was a movement saying, well, part of the Appalachian mountains goes to Canada. Okay. That makes sense. But now there's like folks who are like, well, it goes all the way to Morocco actually. Yeah. So can you tell us about this movement and do you think it's going to be ultimately successful? Yeah, so that it starts with a guy named Dick Anderson, uh, who's a real character. He, he lives up in Maine, and and the story he told me was that he was driving along the highway one day, and he said, you know, he, he was driving up I ninety five, I think, and and he's heading towards the Canadian border, and he realizes that the Appalachians, of course, don't stop at the border, even though the road stops, the the mountains keep going, and and he's a he's a guy who who'd worked in a variety of fields you know, land management for a long time. So he, he knew his geology. He knew that the Appalachians kept going up through Quebec and actually up uh, to the northern tip of Newfoundland. And he thought, why doesn't the Appalachian Trail keep going? You know, who, who cares about the border? So he started a project to continue the Appalachian Trail up to Newfoundland. It then becomes called the International Appalachian Trail because there's a bit of a uh, there's a bit of a uh, rivalry or uh, <laughs> uh, a, a bit of an enmity between the Canadian faction and the American faction. Um, you know, the people who are invested their life's work in the Appalachian Trail want it to end in Maine. They don't want it to keep going forever. But this this new trail 
started getting built. People in, in Quebec and New Brunswick and Newfoundland, they all were on board with it. And so they extend the trail up to the northern tip of Newfoundland. But as they're doing this, Dick Anderson's friends are coming to him and saying, well, you know, if you really want to be strict about it, the Appalachian geology continues throughout Europe because when there was a Pangaea, when there's a mega continent, that was one mountain range, right? The, it, it was actually, it kind of split. If you imagine a piece of paper that's been folded and then it's been torn in half, that's what happened to uh, North America, Europe, and, and North Africa when the mega continent split apart. That The Appalachian Trail was the seam along which we split apart. So the other half of the Appalachian Trail, as it were, is across the Atlantic. And so he started thinking about that, and he said, well, yeah, why not? Why not can build, it's the International Appalachian Trail already, we've already gone to Canada, why not go to Greenland and then down through Western Europe to North Africa? So we started reaching out to other trail clubs there, and just like Benton Mackay, he realized you wouldn't have to build a whole lot of trail, you just have to connect the trails that are already existing. And people just kept jumping on board. He said it was surprisingly easy. And so he has trail clubs now in most of the countries. I think almost all of the countries that he needs to build this incredible 15,000-mile weird postmodern discontinuous trail called the Appalachian Trail. Right. But can you like, yeah, that begs the question, like, can you really call a trail a trail if there's like these gaps, right? Like you have to get on a boat or an airplane. It's it's. It's a really it's it, it's a new conception of what a trail is. I don't know. People always say, "Well, how is it a trail if you can't walk there?" Right? Are you going to walk? Are you going to walk on water? Are you going to get on a on a ferry and walk in circles? You know, <laughs> how are you? But that's for him. It's not about walking. Uh, it's about it's about the 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 line. It's basically a line on a map, and that's why I call it postmodern. Is it's more about this this sort of text and the idea than it is about the physical structure. I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's a worthwhile project in the sense that it will connect all of these countries together and make them work together and create something people can walk, a line people can follow. Because, you know, the Appalachian Trail, no one really walks it continuously anyway, right? You, you go and you, you hitchhike into town once every five days, you come back. Some people skip portions or they do it over the course of years. The shape of the Appalachian Trail changes every year. I mean, you, you can't really be a purist about this stuff because, as I said before, trail is, is much more liquid than we think it is. So once you start messing with the de- definition of what a trail is, it's not such a leap to say that this is one trail. It's just, you know, got some pretty sizable gaps in the middle of it. Yeah. Well, in your epilogue, it was one of my favorite parts because you, you follow this guy, Nimblewell Nomad, this guy who just, he's like Forrest Gump, just decided to start walking one day and he's been walking ever since. Can you tell us a little about him and like what insights about nature and trails that we can glean from his approach to hiking? Yeah. Nimblewell was a guy I wanted to talk to because I, I, I kept thinking about when I came back from the Appalachian Trail what, it, what would have happened if I had kept hiking? You know, the, one of the things that people don't tell you very often is that you, you, you go on these long hikes thinking they're going to be transformative. And they are. You, you are transformed, right? Your body completely changes. Your mind changes. You, you lose weight. You lose uh, sort of all of your stress and your thinking becomes clear and you're happier. But then when you come home, 
you transform back, right? Because we're all just a, a, in large part creatures of our environment. You adapt to your environment. And so if you go back to the same old environment, you're going to become basically the same old person. So I thought, well, maybe if I want to keep that mental clarity and that happiness and, and that fitness, I should have just kept hiking forever. And so I looked around and said, well, who's someone who did that? Is there anyone out there who kind of never stopped hiking? And there are, there are people here and there. There's a guy named Billy Goat who hikes the Pacific Crest Trail every year. And, and there's uh, some people who hike the Appalachian Trail almost every year. But the person who I found most fascinating was a guy named Nimblewill Nomad because he had just taken it to such an extreme. You know, people would tell me these stories about him. They say, oh, he had all of his toenails surgically removed because he kept getting fungal infections. Or he, he only, you know, he only has this backpack with like 10 pounds of gear in it. And he doesn't own anything else. That's, that's all he owns. And, and so I, I looked around for him and I found him online and I wrote to him and he kind of, you know, told me to screw off. He didn't want to meet me. Uh, but I said, no, I really, I, you know, I'm just, I'm fascinated by you. I, I have to, you know, have to meet you. So I wrote to him and wrote to him, wrote to him over, I think it was years. I think it may have been two years I wrote to him. Finally, he begrudgingly said, okay, fine, you can come. I'm going to be walking down this stretch of highway in Texas on this day. And if you can find me, you can walk with me. So I flew down to my sister's place in Houston and we drove out on the highway on that day. And there he was walking down the side of the road. So I pulled over and we gave him some ice cream and he said, oh, well, you found me. You know, so I, I got out and for three days we walked together and, and I got to see during those three days really what it means to, to hone your life down to that single point of interest, right? To live a life of, of true simplicity of the way that we oftentimes romanticize, but the reality of it, you know, is not always as pretty as, as you would want. You know, he, he lives a pretty rough life. He does not have a whole lot of comforts in his life. And he's a guy who's, when I think when I met him, he was 75, 74, 75. So he's sleeping on the hard ground every night. You know, he doesn't carry, a, a, he doesn't carry a toothbrush. So he just has a toothpick. So I, I don't, you know, he's, he's, I'm not, I'm not sure how good his dental hygiene is, but I know his, doesn't carry toilet paper, right? He just uses like water. He, he has, just his life is very rough in a lot of ways, and he has no safety net at all. You know, if he gets sick or something happens to him out there, he's probably going to just die. And he's fine with that. He said, I'm, you know, my, my grandfather died in the woods, and my dad died in the woods, and I'm working on it. He, he really has gotten rid of his fear of death in a way that I find admirable. But in other ways, you know, his life is not something I'd want to emulate. He, he kind of just skims across the surface of a lot of things. His relationships with people are very thin. He, he, he only talks to people for a day or two and then he moves on, you know, and he doesn't have uh, those deep connections, those deep rooted connections with the community that a lot of us need to feel a sense of uh, belonging and, and purpose in our lives. He's, he's totally free and, and being free is not, uh, completely positive thing it's it's actually quite a complicated thing right well being free isn't like you there's constraints right you have yeah yeah there are there are constraints to his freedom as well there's there's always sacrifices you have to make and i thought was interesting too is that his approach to nature you know we were talking earlier about this dichotomy there's like there's civilization sort of man-made stuff and then there's nature which is sort of this untouched by man but 
it seems like Nimblewell sees things as just part of like it's the world. Like everything, like even the man-made stuff is part of nature, and doesn't bother him that he, he'll he'll follow a road, and he has no problem with that. Um, a lot of purists were like, "Well, no, you need to go out into the woods," but he's like, "No, it's a trail. I'm going to follow it." Yeah, he doesn't draw that distinction at all, and I, I thought that was really fascinating. He that's actually quite a uh, that, that's a debate that's been going on. They call it the Great New Wilderness Debate. Is you know the in the 1980s, people like William Cronin started deconstructing our understanding of what wilderness is and what na- nature is and saying these are, these are concepts, these are historical and, and cultural concepts that you know, are not necessarily real. These are things we've, these are sort of useful fictions. And he's someone who's come to that without any academic background and he just has come to that conclusion through his living. He says, you know, if you've got to go up onto some big mountain in Washington in order to feel happy and feel at peace then you've missed the you missed the point entirely you got to be down there on the city streets seeing it the same way you have to come to every aspect of your life with that same appreciation that most of us have when we're in the wilderness he doesn't see it he doesn't see a distinction he walks out of the wilderness he walks onto a highway he walks into a shopping mall and he's looking at it all as natural things right because people are, are natural humans are natural animals as well we're all everything in a sense is natural to him and so his outlook on life is really beautiful in that way. But also, uh, you know, he, it's funny because certain things don't bother him as much as I think they should. You know, he, he's not terribly bothered by pollution. One day we, were, we, we stopped to fill up our bottles with water, and, and this, it was in the town of Port Arthur, Texas, which is an oil refinery town. And the water just smelled foul. It smelled like, like kerosene. And I was outrage you know i said these people's groundwater is poison and he's like yeah that happens around here you know and and just sort of shrugged it off and we got into this big argument about pollution and environmental regulation and climate change and he you know for a guy who spends all his time outdoors and he's he's really uh quite a i mean he's he's pretty far right when it comes to a lot of those issues and that a lot of that springs from the fact that he says, well, look, you know, this is, that's the world we live in. It's, you know, what are we going to do? He said, are we going to go back to the days of, of, you know, the, the wagon and, you know, plowing a field with an ox? If not, then you have to come to grips with that, which is, you know, that's, that's a tough stance to take. And it's not something I agree with, but he, that, that complex outlook on, on wilderness and on nature is something that I found really useful to have to grapple with. Right. Yeah. For him, the oil refinery is just like a volcano. Yeah. It's just- <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or it's, or, you know, or, or maybe it's like how you'd look at a, you know, I don't know, a, a castle or something in another country. I mean, cause when you do take that step back and you just appreciate it for what it is, an oil refinery is kind of beautiful, you know, it's industry can be, can be beautiful. And, and, you know, it's also, kind of monstrous in, in the same way that a, that a castle or a volcano can be monstrous. Well, Robert, this has been a great conversation. There's a lot more we can talk about. So I encourage people to go get your book. Where can people learn more about your work? Well, there's a couple of places. You can go on my website, robertmoore.com. I don't update it very often. Of course, I've got a Twitter feed. But, you know, most importantly, I'd say go out and buy the book. Right right now is a really good time. The, the paperback comes out July 4th. So I think a lot of places have the hardcover on sale. And the hardcover is a really beautiful 
object, you know, the, 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 the book as an object is something I care a lot about. And the people at Simon & Schuster did an incredible job. It, it won the, or was listed as one of the top 10 book covers of the year by the New York Times. So it's just this beautiful, beautiful object. So I would say go out, find the hardcover, start there. Awesome. Well, Robert Moore, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This has been great. My guest today was Robert Moore. He's the author of the book On Trails. It's now available in paperback on Amazon.com. So go check it out. Get that. It's a really great book. Great summertime read. You can also find out more information about his work at robertmoore.com. That's M-O-O-R.com. No E at the end. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash trails, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy this show, I've gotten something out of it. I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own... Trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma. Yay! Trip to Texas. So go to traveltexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Good morning. Baby, it's a brand new day. Experience a different tomorrow with Norwegian Cruise Line. Book today and get 50% off your cruise to Alaska, Europe, and beyond. Plus, everyone can enjoy their vacation with free unlimited open bar, free specialty dining, and more. Visit ncl.com, call your travel advisor, or 1-888-NCL-CRUISE. Offer ends soon. Norwegian Cruise Line. Ships Registry, the Bahamas and USA. Restrictions apply. The rest of my life gonna start today. Oh.